Welcome to She Is Your Neighbor, a show where we discuss the realities and complexities of domestic violence. This podcast is brought to you by Women's Crisis Services of Waterloo Region, a charitable organization in Ontario, Canada. I'm your host, Jenna Main. Join me as we talk to different people each week to learn how domestic violence impacts people from all walks of life. She is your neighbor, and we all have a role to play in ending domestic violence. This week's episode is called Traumatic Brain Injury as a Result of Intimate Partner Violence with Lynn Hogg. Lynn is a registered social worker and a PhD candidate at the Faculty of Social Work at Wilfrid Laurier University. Lynn is also a survivor of traumatic brain injury. She began as a disability scholar who became interested in the connection between traumatic brain injury and intimate partner violence. This is an area where there is not a lot of research. Lynn has really dove into this area with her team, and a lot of new research is now coming out about this. I learned so much from Lynn during this discussion. It was a really eye-opening conversation about just how common traumatic brain injury is for women who've experienced domestic violence. Lynn explained how often it occurs, how it can impact someone's day-to-day life, and how it can often be confused for other things. I think you'll really enjoy this episode and learn a lot from it. I know I sure did. Now, before we get started, I'd like to note that the following episode includes a discussion of domestic violence and abuse, which may be distressing or traumatic for some listeners. Please take care of yourself and don't hesitate to ask for help if you need it. I'd also like to thank our episode sponsor, 570 News, local reporters and local journalists keeping you connected to your community 24-7 with the latest breaking news from where you live. Stay up to date with everything happening in your ever-changing universe with 570 News, Kitchener's local source for news, sports, and talk. Hi, Lynn. Thanks again for being here today. Hi, Jenna. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today, so uh, I'm just really grateful to have you here. So before we begin, can you start by just sharing a little bit about yourself? Sure. My professional name is Helena, uh, and I use Lynn, so Helena Hogg, and um, I am a registered social worker as well as a PhD candidate at the Faculty of Social Work at Wilfrid Laurier University here in Waterloo. I'm also a contract faculty member, so I teach in the faculty as well, and I'm attached to the Acquired Brain Injury Research Lab at the University of Toronto under the supervision of Dr. Angela Colantonio. I am also a a survivor of traumatic brain injury, so I live with one myself, which gives me a bit of an insider uh, edge in terms of understanding what's happening for folks. And in terms of my research and my practice, I'm a disability scholar, so my work tends to focus on disability, specifically on traumatic brain injury. And I came to the intimate partner violence arena because I was really interested in women who've been exposed to intimate partner violence and how many of those women may or may not have traumatic brain injuries as a result of that. Great. Thank you for sharing that. So, yeah, as you mentioned, today we're going to talk about traumatic brain injury and domestic violence and the connection there. And I thought maybe you could just start by telling us what traumatic brain injury is. Sure. 
The technical definition of a traumatic brain injury, it's first of all, it's acquired. So it happens after birth. And secondly, the most one of the most important sort of characteristics is that you're going to get a traumatic brain injury from some sort of hit to the head, face or neck uh, being shaken, um, some sort of very sudden movement of the brain inside the skull. You have an alteration of consciousness in some form. You don't have to actually black out or lose consciousness, but we talk about having your bell rung or seeing stars. That's enough to have to have been uh, the cause of a, of a traumatic brain injury. And there are different forms of it. So we have mild, moderate, and severe brain injuries. Severe is fairly obvious. And you can have, you can have sort of penetration to the skull, so an open wound or, or not. You, with a mild injury, there will be lots of time when you wouldn't actually see anything at all. Concussions are a part of the mild brain injury family. And there's an awful lot of talk about concussions um, in the general population, particularly when it comes to sports and athletes. And what we say in, in the sort of traumatic brain injury world is that all concussions are a form of mild traumatic brain injury, but not all mild traumatic brain injuries are concussions. So it is a complex group and there are lots of different ways that you can get one and lots of different things that they can look like, uh, but concussion is certainly a part of that. One of the things that is important to understand about that mild, moderate and severe piece is that that's not about, the, those labels aren't part of trying to understand the implications of it or the long-term outcome. Those are diagnostic terms that get applied very, very quickly post-injury, and they're based on a series of very specific tests. So someone who has a mild injury, diagnosed with a mild injury, can, can easily have quite severe consequences that will last for a very long time, if not permanently. Many folks do recover entirely from mild to moderate level of injury, but lots of people don't. And it's important to understand that, that just because somebody tells you you have a mild brain injury doesn't necessarily mean that you should be 100% better or, or that that means that it, it isn't a big deal. It can be a very big deal for a lot of folks. The other thing that's important, I think, to understand about brain injury in this group is that there is an extra kind. We talk a lot about traumatic brain injury and I tend to lump them together, which isn't very scientific of me, but I'm more interested in dealing with the issue in many ways. So, um, but it is important to understand that there is a special type of brain injury called a hypoxic brain injury, which is caused by either um, lack of blood supply to the brain or lack of oxygen to the brain. And it becomes relevant to this group when you consider strangulation. That's a very plausible reason for causing a hypoxic injury. And we do see quite a number of that number of those as well. I think one of the things that is, is also really important to understand that's a sort of a, a quick piece of info about uh, brain injuries is that it's important to recognize that um, repeated exposure to small injuries will add up and become cumulative over time. So your first injury is, is just that. It is what it is. Maybe you recover in a couple of weeks, you feel fine, everything goes back to normal and, and life goes on. And then you have another one. And that one layers on top of the first one. And again, maybe it takes a month this time or six weeks, but again, it, it resolves and you feel fine. Then you get another one on top of that and maybe another one on top of that. And what you start to realize is that not only, it's not just layering one plus one plus one anymore, it's now like one plus three plus five plus eight. 
and all of a sudden you have a much bigger picture and a much larger, more complex problem to deal with. And in some cases, we're seeing, particularly in very specialized athletes um, who are getting a lot of repeated um, small concussive events to their head, so football players, hockey players, soccer players, we've got something that sort of builds up and, and can become a lifelong degenerative condition and called CTE, which is something that we don't have a diagnosis for in, in the women that, that I'm working with. But certainly those of us in the research field are sort of, we're waiting for it. We expect it to be there in many ways. And I think the last thing that's really important to understand about traumatic brain injury and, and what is this thing and why does it matter in terms of, of um, a sort of a hopeful note, because a lot of what I talk about is, is a little bit, it's heavy and it's not very happy news in many ways. But the good news is that, that we can do a lot. So even many years post-injury, we can make a difference for folks. Um, it may not be that you heal the original injured piece. That's quite possible. But there are so many ways in which we can support and retrain your brain. Accommodations can be made. There's a lot of things that can be done to improve, to improve the general outcome. So just because it, it happened years ago or you were never properly diagnosed is no reason to believe that nothing can be, can be better than it is right now. Okay, great. Thank you. I really appreciate you elaborating on that and explaining all those pieces because I know for me, I did not understand all of that before you spoke and understanding all the different levels and severity and how they relate to concussions as well. Uh, I really appreciate you explaining that and also knowing that there is something we can do as well as is I think very helpful, like you said. So, so thank you for explaining that. I think that piece of it is really important. You know, so much of the so much of what women are experiencing in their lives when they're involved in a, in a violent relationship and um, so many of the different avenues that they look for, they're all closed doors. And, and there's a lot, there's no good news anywhere in that sense. And I think the thing to, to realize, it is important to know that life can be improved. You know, speaking from the inside out as well, uh, I'm 19 years post my own injury and my life is very, very different than it was in the first five. And it's not a quick fix. There is no quick fix, but there can be there can be a long term better, I guess, is what we we really like to, to make sure that 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 message gets out there as well. Yeah, I think that's really empowering to know that it, it can get better and it will. And, and there are resources to support people who are going through this. Um, especially women who who have had a traumatic brain injury due to domestic violence. I'm wondering if you can also kind of explain how common it is a traumatic brain injury due to domestic violence. Yeah, this is, um, I really wish I could say it doesn't happen very often. But unfortunately, what we're learning is that that's not the case, uh, quite the opposite. We've had new statistics released this spring from the World Health Organization that says that one in three women worldwide will experience physical violence as a part of intimate partner violence. So uh, that statistic has now gone up. And we know that uh, 92%, over 90%, 92, 93, will, uh, violent encounters will include hits to the head, face and neck, as well as strangulation. So part of the problem is, is that we're seeing more and more violent encounters and almost all of those will at some point include some form of violence to the head, face, and neck. And probably, aside from broken bones and bruises, the most likely kind of injury that you're going to get from that kind of assault is an injury to the brain itself. 
And what we're seeing is that at least 75% of women who are exposed to intimate partner violence are likely to have sustained a traumatic brain injury as a result. If we do the math on that, what we're looking at at this point is approximately one in four Canadian women are likely to have sustained a traumatic brain injury as a result of intimate partner violence. And I think part of what I find so important about that, and, and one of the things that I do is compare it to a known statistic, something that we're really comfortable with, one in eight Canadian women will develop breast cancer. And when you think about how much you know about breast cancer and how much money gets poured into research and support, which it absolutely should, I'm, I'm not complaining about that, but there's so much known, there's so much understood, there's so much treatment, there's so much uh, psychological support, there's so much intervention out there to support breast cancer survivors. There's very little stigma left around breast cancer. There's, there's very little judgment. Nobody looks at you and says, well, what were you doing that caused this? Or what should you have done differently when it first, when you first saw it? Or why didn't you know that you had it right away? All those kinds of, of messages, those don't happen with breast cancer. And yet I've got something here that's twice as common. And all of those things are being attached to it. So there's very little money. There's very little understanding. There's practically no research worldwide, let alone Canadian data. We don't have specialized services and supports. We don't have a lot of people understanding, even in a professional capacity, let alone in a private or personal capacity. And all of those shame and stigma messages, those are definitely happening in the intimate partner violence context. So women are being questioned about, about their role in, in this activity on a daily basis. And now they're being held accountable for for their their for an injury that has nothing that they didn't bring upon themselves in any way shape or form one of the things that that folks always say is well you know i didn't lose consciousness or you know it, it, he didn't hit me that hard or or you know she didn't throw me that hard up against a wall or anything like that and it doesn't the thing is it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be you know pieces of your head open and blood everywhere and you're unconscious for five hours. It can be as simple as somebody grabbing you and you, you spinning around quickly. That motion of your brain, what happens is your, your brain moves inside your head at a different speed than your head moved. So if you're shaken or you're twisted off your feet, then your brain moves faster and it, it collides with the inside of your skull and then you get bruising and, and damage done that way. Because the inside of our skull is all bony and pokey. It's not nice and smooth. So if the brain comes into contact with that, then it can get uh, bruised and damaged. As well, all the little pieces that connect and hold your brain in place and, and all those pieces carry electrical uh, information back and forth. That's how your brain communicates, is through these little electrical pathways. They get stretched or torn and so they no longer function properly anymore. So really you can have what seems like not very much happen to you and have quite a significant impact, especially if you're talking about one after another after another. So anything like being hit in the head with a fist or an object, having your head uh, slammed into a hard object like a wall or, or a floor, a door, being shaken or thrown, and unfortunately being strangled 
it goes back to that injury that we were talking about a minute ago where you're cutting off both the blood supply and the oxygen supply. It takes an unbelievably small amount of physical pressure on the neck to create that sort of little perfect storm. You don't need to black out or lose consciousness. You don't need to stop breathing in order for the damage to be done. So these are all ways in which we would expect to see damage to the brain as a result of these sorts of activities. And we know full well these are happening all the time for women who are in these situations. Yeah, it gave me chills when you talked about the numbers there and compared it to to breast cancer and explained how often this is happening, but how little is known about it. Like I I know people don't know how frequent this is and, and it's scary to hear that. It's really frustrating to me. Um, I started this work about seven years ago now. This wasn't what I went into social work to do. It wasn't, I don't come from working in a, in a domestic violence background. I don't have an awful lot of experience with it. But what I do know is traumatic brain injury very well, both from the, the research that's out there as well as from my own experience. And I know enough people who do work on the front lines in the domestic violence context. And I know how little they know about brain injury. I know what we're not teaching our social workers and on, on this subject. And we didn't, I'm not saying for a second that, that somebody should be held accountable for that, that that was wrong in any way. We didn't know. It's hard to explain to people that we can have this incredible public health concern that absolutely nobody was aware of. The, the medical profession, the first responders, the front lines in the in the domestic violence context, n- nobody knew. There, the research didn't pick this up. We didn't. We've had very very limited research in the brain injury research community for approximately 20 years. There may be one or two articles a year, studies a year that were done, and they they were never built on for some reason. So, when I came into this work about seven years ago, and I I just I stumbled across the literature. It was something that I was I was helping out a friend with a paper, and I read a couple of papers for her. And I sat there reading the prevalence rates, reading that we were talking about seventy five percent of survivors. That I could do the math and realize we're looking at sort of you know one in four, one in five women, and thought to myself, I know how hard it is to function and to do all the things that I need to do. And nobody's throwing me punches. Nobody's, I'm not worried about what's happening in my physical safety day to day. I couldn't even begin to imagine what that meant. And I started to think about what the implications were for that. And I started to think, okay, what are the things that are going to be affected by a brain injury? And how is that going to be an added challenge for a woman in these circumstances? And I mean, I honestly, I can remember feeling nauseous and thinking this is a huge problem. And we don't know about it on the brain injury side because I've been working in the brain injury research for 10 years at this point. I had never heard about this particular intersection. And we don't know about it on the treatment and the support side because three quarters of my colleagues are in this particular field and they know nothing about traumatic brain injury. They haven't even got a clue of what it looks like or how to, to recognize it. So nobody is looking at this and is talking about it and is doing anything about it. And for me, part of the reason that that is absolutely 
unacceptable is that I think a big piece of what's happening for women is that their capacity to leave is becoming impaired through cognitive damage, through a brain injury. And if that's the case, this question about why don't women leave that, that we so frequently hear, hear asked. And I mean, I have problems with that question on different levels, but I begin to wonder if the answer to that question is partially because they're cognitively impaired from doing so. In which case, we're talking about women who can be injured like this off the first exposure. So it's not even that you need to be, you need to be experiencing violent encounters for a period of time. The first one can do this. And if the first one does this and then stops you from being able to leave, and then we're going to blame women for that and shame them for staying, and we're not going to support them, and we're not going to recognize, and all of our systems are designed for someone with a healthy brain who functions in a very specific way that these women may not any longer do. Your judges are going to ask questions, and they're not going to understand the answers because the answers come out differently than they're expected to. CAS is going to ask questions about capacity when women with brain injuries are parenting all the time. This isn't a problem. They just need support and understanding. We can do that. We know how to do that in the brain injury community. We just need to transfer that into the IPV community. Police officers come to the door and see a woman who is, appears to be drunk or high using substances because her speech is slurred and she's unsteady on her feet. They are immediately thinking substance use instead of thinking, wait a minute, have we got a concussion going on here? So it's that piece about seeing how, seeing how important it is that the, that the information, just, just that the intersection exists, gets out there. Sorry, I think I took us off on a tangent. No, that's great to understand. Thank you for elaborating on that. And I'm wondering, if, can you continue to explain what the impact is when someone has a traumatic brain injury? Because you mentioned it would be difficult to leave and it, it might appear like um, they're drunk or something like that. So, and I know you know from personal experience, what, how does that impact a person's day-to-day -day life? Sure. And again, you know, I wish I had a simple answer. <laughs> Part of the challenge with brain injury is that it's probably one of the most complex conditions that we know much about at all. Part of the reason for that is, is that there are no two injuries that are the same. So every person is, is an individual, is unique, and every injury is going to be unique. And by the time you put those two together within whatever their context is, you have a, a singular item. So every single brain injury is unique and doesn't look like the next one, whether you got them at the same time in the same car accident or however you got them. So that makes things really complicated. But one of the things that we do know is that there are sort of clusters of, of challenges that go along with a traumatic brain injury that we can expect to see. So one of those clusters is cognitive damage. And we look for things like challenges with memory, both in terms of storing information, but also in, in terms of retrieval. That's really important for women in this context because how often do people say, oh, well, she's not telling you the same story twice and then they start to think she's making it up. I don't expect somebody with a brain injury to tell me the same story twice. It's going to change. I'd be a lot more surprised if they were consistent all the time on details, or if they were linear. A lot of what happens for folks with brain injury is that information comes out in bits and pieces in different ways. And you'll hear that just in conversation with me. 
I will I will go around in circles because I think about things differently. Um, and then it no longer comes out in a linear fashion. And and that's fine for somebody, you know, for, for you and I sitting down having a conversation. That's not a problem. But for someone who's on, in a police station or in a courtroom, that becomes a really big issue. So memory is a big piece of it. Communication is impaired often. Um, word finding, that linear pattern, all the kinds of rules that we have about how we interact with other folks, those can get changed really quickly. We've got trouble with multitasking, so it's very difficult to do more than one thing at once. Organization skills are, are a big one to be impaired quite often, so very difficult to decide what order you do things in. And then you get overwhelmed and you don't do anything. So it, it has that sort of um, freeze in the headlights kind of effect to it. It can be difficult to, to uh, recognize yourself in some ways. Um, there are personality changes that often go along with it. And that's something that I've always thought was really interesting. It would never have occurred to me that your brain stores much of your personality. And yet we see this frequently with folks who are living with brain injuries. I experienced it myself. Um, you can get really dramatic personality changes. The next sort of group of things that we generally have trouble with um, are physical difficulties. So uh, the big one in there is headaches. Uh, lots and lots of folks with, with brain injuries are experiencing ongoing problems with headaches. Ringing in your ears, uh, which is called tinnitus, is also something that we notice. Dizziness can be a problem for some folks, not for others though. Um, challenges with your sleep, either sleeping too much or too little, having trouble falling asleep, all of those together or separately can be part of brain injury. Um, and then the third group are sort of uh, psychological challenges. So we see an awful lot of overlap with mental health difficulty, uh, depression and anxiety in all folks with traumatic brain injury, very, very high, quite understandably so. Partially that's gonna be a chemical thing, partially it's gonna be an electrical thing, and partially it's going to be a perfectly natural reaction to a really crappy situation. In this particular group, the other thing that we notice is that there's a huge correlation. Um, you're getting an awful lot together with post-traumatic stress disorder. And again, that is completely expected. If your traumatic brain injury in and of itself, unless the circumstances in which you were injured were psychologically distressing, you wouldn't expect to see a post-traumatic stress disorder diagnosis at the same time. But the minute that you get yourself into a position where the way in which you get the injury is in and of itself psychologically horrifying on some level, you run the risk of that, that second diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. And the problem is, is that they look an awful lot alike. It's very difficult to tell one from the other. There are a few markers for each of them where in, in what I would call a clean traumatic brain injury where you don't have that trauma piece involved, I wouldn't expect to see nightmares and flashbacks necessarily. It doesn't mean to say you would never see it, but it's not all the time. The minute I have someone talking to me about nightmares and flashbacks or avoidance uh, behavior, then I start asking, well, how did you get the injury? How, like what was, what was happening in that moment? How were you feeling at that time? that kind of thing, because then I'm looking for that trauma piece to come inside. And if you're talking about someone that you love and trust who, who has injured you, that's a traumatic event. I would be surprised if we're not looking at both conditions at the same time. And the 
the thing that's important is I used to think, well, it doesn't really matter if we understand one or the other and we tease them apart um, as long as we're dealing with a problem. But I, I think that's changed for me a bit. And I think more that it is important that we understand that the brain injury piece is there and it is relevant. And the reason for that is that we can support the brain injury. There are things, like I said at the very beginning, there are things that we can do many, many years after the injury that can improve women's functioning and can improve their overall um, outcome. So I think it is important that we start to understand that both of those things are happening and that we need to treat them differently. We need to understand them and we need to support differently. That makes sense to me. And I think when you understand why it's happening too, like you said, there's different ways to treat it, but that's also making me think, we know that domestic violence is increasing during the pandemic, during COVID. So then could you also then guess that traumatic brain injury due to domestic violence would be increasing as well? Again, I, I, I do. Sometimes I sort of say to folks, you know, I have nothing but bad news. Yes. Yeah, we don't have, it's too early on in, in what we're experiencing right now to have sort of hard data from a science perspective. But um, yeah, those of us who are in, in this particular field, particularly my colleagues on the traumatic brain injury side. So I tend to work a lot. Most of my research and most of my practice are very much community oriented. So I'm working in a team that includes frontline community organizations, advocacy groups and survivors always in my research. And my brain injury folks are scared. They're really scared because we know what we do know for sure is that the rates of prevalence of intimate partner violence are going up dramatically. I mean, we all knew they were going to, but going up by 30%, we didn't expect that much. That's huge. And we also know, we're hearing from the front lines, that the level of violence is increasing as well. So where, where they might have been um, experiencing non-physical intimate partner violence, now that's, that's ratcheted up and we're getting physical assault at the same time. So we not only have more overall, we also have more violent encounters. And there is no reason on earth to expect that that's not going to produce an equal increase in, in, ter- in numbers of brain injuries. And my colleagues, as I say, they're scared because they know full well that what's going to happen is about two years from now, there's going to be a wave that comes through that's going to be an awful lot more brain injuries that were unsupported, undiagnosed right from the very beginning that were hidden in this particular group. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Unfortunately, it's it's hard to hear, but it does make a lot of sense. You were also just mentioning there that you speak to a lot of survivors and frontline workers in your research. I was wondering, are there any stories that kind of stand out in your mind about a woman who has experienced this that you might be able to share? What I like to do is sort of take a, a consolidation. So I think about all the women that I've spoken to and and I, I listen for, because I'm a, a researcher who listens to people's stories and who looks for patterns and looks for, for sort of, you know, moments, I think about all the things that I've heard over the years that I hear a lot. All, all of this, the women have their own stories to tell. All of the survivors have their own stories. But there are messages that seem to sort of come through a lot. And I think it's really important that we amplify those and that we understand both from a service perspective, but also um, I think it's really important for survivors to hear their thoughts coming from other 
other survivors and to know that they're not alone and to know that their experiences are are connected to someone else. So if it's okay with you, I'll talk a little bit about those 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 messages that that I hear. I think one of the things that's really important that that they tell me is so important is that no one asked me. That message of no one ever asked me. And I hear repeatedly uh, police, you know, first responders, um, ER docs, nurses, colleagues, bosses, you know, physical, visible signs of injury and nobody's asking, how did it happen? Are you okay? Are you experiencing any of these signs and symptoms of traumatic brain injury? You know, I sort of, I'm, I don't expect anybody to be asking that question yet. I'm hoping that in a year or two that really changes and we get the ERs asking and, and get the police, you know, on the doorstep thinking about it. But even the sort of, that we're still at the stage where I hear from survivors all the time, no one asked me. I think we need to really work at shifting that. One thing I hear from, from women so often I, I just don't feel like myself anymore. That I don't know who this person is. I, d I, don't, I don't feel normal to myself anymore. All those kinds of messages. And so much of that is, is because they are not looking at their own experience from a brain injury perspective either. People think that when the bruises heal and the broken bones heal, then it's done. Then that's all it was. And, and you put it behind you or you deal with it or, or you bury it psychologically or or you do whatever it is you do to survive and and that's okay and you move forward from there and that's all it ever is but what we're seeing is that's not all it ever is these these brain injuries are happening and they're you know these are are challenges that are long term and women don't they don't know what's going on for them they just think they're losing your their mind they think they're, and they've got somebody telling them that all the time too, reinforcing that, which is particularly problematic. One of the messages that we hear from them is, it feels like you're losing your mind and nobody understands. And it's that disconnect with, I used to be able to do this, this, and this. I can't do those things anymore and I don't understand why. If you, if you break your leg, you don't expect to be able to walk on it. So you understand that. But if you break your brain and you don't know that, you keep asking it to do the same things, you don't understand why it won't do it anymore. And then you've got somebody telling you all the time it's because you're stupid or because you're bad or because you're not trying hard enough. And, and those messages, it doesn't take long for someone to internalize that and believe it themselves. The other thing that we hear a lot, and we hear this from, from all brain injury survivors, is, but we also hear it a lot from, from women in this particular group, um, is that the relief that they feel when they understand what's happening. Because it's not, there's a reason. It's not that they're stupid. It's not that they're, they're bad or they're making bad choices or any of those things. There's a physiological reason for what's happening in their life. And that's not good news, but it's news they can do something with and they can understand what's happening and there's, there's information and hopefully supports so that something can be done for it. That makes a lot of sense. 
I'm I'm also kind of as you're talking it it's getting me thinking you know we've talked a lot about these women who've experienced traumatic brain injury as a result of domestic violence but you're also mentioning you know there's other people who who've experienced traumatic brain injury for other reasons and it's kind of making me wonder about the other groups of people too so are there people who've experienced traumatic brain injury who also end up in domestic violence relationships and I'm wondering how that what the impact of that is and sorry double question but then the other the third group that I'm thinking about is also the perpetrators or the men who are involved too and, and whether this impacts them so I apologize for the double question but I'm, I'm curious about these two groups and if if they're also groups that we should be talking about too yeah it's it, when, one of the things that we do know is that women with disabilities in general are um, more likely to end up in um, in domestic violence situations than women without disabilities. And that's certainly true of women with traumatic brain injury, even more so. Uh, it is definitely a risk factor for intimate partner violence. And when you think, again, back to where we started in the very beginning with the issue of, of one layering on top of the other, um, you never really get you never really get to heal and and never and think well okay if I get the next one it's just as if I never had one in the first place it doesn't quite work like that with brain injury so um, even if your first injury had nothing at all to do with intimate partner violence it puts you in a position where you're more likely to end up in intimate in an intimate partner violent relationship which then puts you in the position of another injury which then becomes cumulative and more problematic and so on and so on and so on. So the short answer is yes, it's, it is more dangerous. Intimate partner violence is, is a bigger problem for folks with disabilities than it is for, for folks who don't have disabilities. Um, and I think the, the question about perpetrators and I'm just going to take a tiny little sidestep for a second and say my work focuses on women survivors, so I talk a lot about women. But um, intimate partner violence does happen to anyone, and and it can be anyone throwing the punches. I focus on women because that's the more likely group to be experiencing brain injury as a result of exposure. Um, It's just statistically more likely, and it's physically more likely. I'm interested in male perpetrators because... If it's men throwing punches, it's more likely that they're going to be doing more damage than a smaller, less physical, less uh, um, significant altercation. So that wraps back around to um, your question about perpetrators. And one of the things that we do know is that over 50% of male perpetrators of domestic violence have a previous history of a traumatic brain injury. Um, Now... That's interesting to me on a couple of levels. One is what would change if we started supporting those brain injuries? So if we started identifying at a much earlier age or immediately post-injury that this was that this injury was was going to put them in a position to be more likely to engage in physical violence, no matter who it is or in what circumstance, if we supported that more effectively, maybe we'd be reducing the rates. So it's a preventative piece in there that I think we could be exploring. But also, um, one of the things that people ask me very, very often is, well, what about the children? Um, Because we know that it's, you know, intimate partner violence is not just about a couple. It's about a family. Um, And it's about a lot of people in, in circumstances. And 
we also talk a lot about the cycle of violence and how kids who are who are exposed to violence in their in their home lives early on often end up in violent relationships and I have to wonder if part of that is a brain injury piece if you have children who are uh, experiencing being shaken being being pushed hard aside and and falling over and hitting their heads if that's a regular occurrence and they are sustaining injuries to their brains that we're not aware of and we're not supporting what happens with them when they're growing up as adults. Does that put them in a position to be more likely to become on either end of the spectrum, either the perpetrator or the person who is who's in the position of receiving the violence? So I think those are questions that we're, I wish we had more information on this. I, I wish, but it's it's really sort of hard to explain to people that that we have so little information and so little research and these are just questions that we have nothing on yet so as we start to wrap up here i still have a couple more things i wanted to ask you um and one of them is just pretty simple but i'm, I'm just wondering why this conversation is important to you um i think this isn't work i would have chosen it's it's too up close and personal to me for a variety of reasons and I would not have done work in the domestic violence context as a social worker. I was busy doing other things and I was perfectly content to stay there until until I understood, until I could see clearly in front of me the extent of the problem combined with the complete lack of understanding and services and knowing full well what the experience of a brain injury is like. And I think, you know, it just, it just took someone who who understood all the pieces of the puzzle. It, it needed a brain injured social worker to, to understand what the implications were. And, and it needed that person to come across the right information at the right time and, and have the freedom and the luxury that I do as a PhD student to be able to explore that. And, and you know, I, I really feel for me, this is it. This is where I spend the rest of my working career until until I can, I can decide that we've, we've done what we can do. And I see a lot of change. Even I don't want to hear it anymore. I don't want to hear somebody say to me, I just never thought about it. When I stop hearing that, then I'm done. And then I can go and do something else. But until that point, I just feel we can't keep walking away. We can't keep saying, why did you leave? when when too many of us know that this is a possibility that this is what part of that discussion looks like and as long as that's the case we need to do something about it because things have to change i agree with you and i think you know this project's really important to me you know the whole idea behind it is she is your neighbor and helping helping everyone recognize that this is happening to so many more people than we even we even know about she is your neighbor. Domestic violence happens to people in all sorts of neighborhoods and people who you might not expect. So to me, that's also a really important piece of the project. And, and another part of that is we also want to encourage people to think about how they themselves can be good neighbors to those who are going through this. So I'm wondering if you can share some thoughts on where we go from here and how we can be good neighbors to those experiencing domestic violence. 
what we need is knowledge and understanding. So the best thing that folks can do to be a good neighbor is just learn about traumatic brain injury. Listen to the podcast and learn about the fact that this even exists. You know, I always, when I do talks, I have this little slide that has a picture of an elephant that's all broken out into pieces and, and people looking at just the tail of the elephant or just the ears of the elephant or the trunk and nobody sees that it's an elephant. We need to just take a step back and we need to listen to survivors and listen to what they're experiencing and not just leap to a conclusion and just wait a minute and say, what if? What if something bigger is happening and, and we need to understand that a little bit better so that we can do we can do a better job of supporting you in your process. Don't assume a woman is lying because her story changes. Don't assume that she can't parent because she forgets things or because it's really, really hard for her to get out of bed. Find ways to support that process. You know, um, I've had, I've had survivors talk to me about how the things that made the difference were a neighbor who picked up her kids on the way to school and would take her children with their children and off to school because mornings were brutal for her. They just, and I understand that completely. I mean, I can't even think until about 10 a.m. So it's really, it's things like that. It's little things that, that can make a difference. Um, grocery shopping is one of the worst things to do to somebody with a brain injury. There's just way too much stimulation in a grocery store. There's too much noise and light and things and choice. And it's, it's horrible. Offer to help someone with their groceries. You know, if you know that this is something that they're going through, then then just offer to help with those little things. Those are the kinds of things. It's about community. It's why we built the toolkit that we did. It's great for me to say, go learn about traumatic brain injury, but where are you supposed to learn it from? Um, we built an educational toolkit called the Abused and Brain Injured Toolkit. It's at abitoolkit.ca. It's full of information and resources, both about traumatic brain injury specifically, but also a little bit about IPV. Lots of links out to different organizations, uh, lots of links and information on where your local brain injury service is, depending on where you are across the country. There is somewhere that you can go, and that's part of why we built what we built. We wanted it to be a community. We wanted to be able to support people in what you're talking about in being a good neighbor. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here today, Lynn. I learned so much from you, and it was so great to chat with you. Thanks so much for having me, Jenna. It's, I think it's so important that we just have this conversation on a regular basis, and I'm thrilled to be a part of it. So thank you. Thank you to our episode sponsor, 570 News, local reporters and local journalists keeping you connected to your community 24-7 with the latest breaking news from where you live. Stay up to date with everything happening in your ever-changing universe with 570 News, Kitchener's local source for news, sports, and talk. That wraps up this week's show, but the conversation is far from over. We want to hear what you think. Use the hashtag SheIsYourNeighbor on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram and join in the conversation. We all have a role to play in ending domestic violence.